Matthew, the accountant, the one that was a tax collector that God redeemed, friend of sinners, the one who said, I open my heart, I open my house, I'll open up my hand. Jesus Christ recruited him to pin his life blood, his lineage. And Jesus says, you've got to investigate my family. Matthew said, why? He says, because I will be the king of kings and lord of lords. Check it out, dude. Go to the temple, go through all the scrolls and find out that I am the promised one, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac and Jacob, the son of Josiah, the Jesus of Zoklar, and son of all those people. That's you, Matthew said? Investigate it. And so Matthew, with his really smartness and with his meticulous little pinness, he went and he, he went to the temple and he said, oh my gosh. And he discovered more and more, it's true. The dude that recruited me is the king. Holy cow. Welcome to today's broadcast. I'm Brooks Gibbs, lead pastor of Devotion Church. Whenever I'm tempted to skim over a boring passage, I make myself do a deeper dive. And when I do, I'm never disappointed. Every word of scripture is important and inspired by the Holy Spirit. Even the seemingly boring passages like the genealogy we study in today's message from Matthew chapter one. Matthew starts out his gospel with a long genealogy of Christ's pedigree. Now, why does it even matter, you think? Well, because in order for Jesus to claim to be king, he needs to prove that his kingship is in his bloodline. And Matthew did not have Ancestry.com to assist him. He did research the old-fashioned way and researched the temple scrolls. And thank God he did, because shortly after he penned this book, the temple with all of its scrolls were destroyed, never to be discovered or recovered. So the genealogy we read in this passage is the last surviving Jewish one that connects Jesus to Abraham. Now that may not be very exciting to you, but to a guy like Matthew, it was mind-blowing. He's kind of a quirky guy. Uh, I like the hit television series, The Chosen, and I like how they depict Matthew. He seems to be in the character as someone who's on the autism spectrum, socially awkward, but mathematically genius. And I, I think they're not too far off. Matthew was so unique, Jesus knew exactly how to use his genius for Christ's glory. So. Uh, before we dig into our very first verse-by-verse -verse study of the book of Matthew, I'm going to take you to a place in Scripture where Jesus and Matthew meet for the first time. And his name originally was Levi, and Jesus, of course, changed his life forever. So let's jump right into the study. In Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus went out again by the sea, and all the multitude came to him, and he taught them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, a.k.a. Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax office. Imagine a lemonade stand, but it was for, like, taxes, okay? It's like the opposite feelings that a lemonade stand brings you. And Jesus walked up to Matthew and said, follow me. Everyone say, follow me. Remember, that's what Jesus is always asking people to do. Follow me, be like me. Love what I love, do what I do, teach what I teach, follow me, get to know me more, get close. So he, Matthew, arose and followed him just like that. The first thing I want to notice is that Matthew opened his heart to Jesus. It's the first thing Matthew did. Matthew is an incredible person as you study him in the New Testament. He was one of the original disciples. He was the one that wrote the book of Matthew. One of the most read, if not the most read book in, in all of history 
of those who read scripture. Matthew was going to be an incredible person. And the first thing Matthew did is he opened his heart and he said, okay, I hope that's where you are. I hope you have not been asked by Jesus to follow him and you keep putting it off. I mean, how many services have you gone to where you have heard the preacher say, come follow Jesus, accept Jesus in your heart, follow him, become a Christian. And you keep putting it off and putting it off and putting it off. Maybe you said, well, I'll just go to church, but I'm not ready to fully immerse myself to be discipled by Jesus. I hope that's not you. I hope that you are like Matthew, who leaves everything that he's known and says, okay, I will follow you, Jesus. I'll follow you. What an incredible, what an incredible heart. He opened his heart. He said, okay. The second thing we need to notice is what happens next. Verse 15. Now it happened as Jesus was dining in Levi, Matthew's house. So Jesus went to go eat dinner with Matthew. And it says uh, that many tax collectors and sinners also sat together with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many and they followed him. So the first thing is he opened his heart. The second thing he says, I'm going to open my home. Jesus, will you come and eat? Now, Jesus, you got to understand that all my friends are my colleagues. They're all tax collectors and uh, they're the most hated men in all of, uh, you, know, you know, all the Jews, all the Hebrews, all of Israel, all of Judea. Every, every part of like the Jewish nation hated tax collectors. I'll tell you why in a second. Continue reading. It says, And when the scribes, verse 16, and Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, they said to his disciples, How is it that this Jesus eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, This is beautiful. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick need a physician. I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. So right here, we realize why Jesus was called, why he came, what his purpose was. It was to become a friend of sinners, which we all are. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but some were notorious sinners. I mean, really, really, really bad sinners. To God, a sin is a sin is a sin is a sin. There's not, I guess there is levels of sin, certainly, like a little white lie versus a complete con artist lifestyle. I mean, that's definitely different levels of sin. And I do believe that there's different levels of punishment and discipline from God. But ultimately, if you have sin in your heart, it separates you from a holy God. So whether you have a little or a lot, you're still a sinner. But Jesus loved the notorious sinners because those are the ones who, I guess, would be the greatest testimony of a changed life. Wouldn't you agree? The most radically hated, terrible, notorious sinners if he could reach those, then they would be a natural um, illustration of God's grace. And that's what Jesus went for. He went for the tax collector, Matthew. Tax collectors were hated because they worked for Rome. The Jews hated the Romans. The Jews were under the oppression of the Romans. The Jews did not have a state of their own. They were basically borrowing land and they had to pay the Romans for the use of the land. So they had to pay taxes. And this is how messed up the Roman government system was. The Romans would say, all right, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna hire tax collectors and spread them out throughout all different territories across Rome. And we're going to give them a quota to meet every month. And those tax collectors need to collect that quota from that territory and bring it to us. 
And we're going to look at it. And if they don't bring, meet that quota, we'll kill the tax collector. Well, they thought that was a good one because then, you know, it's not our problem. It'll be the tax collectors. We're kind of like shifting responsibility. Well, here's the problem. Tax collectors said, okay, what's your quota? All right, $100,000 or whatever. Or like in a place like Nazareth, it was like uh, $35, you know, in taxes from these poor folks. All right, so here's what Matthew did. He would say, I'll, I got to meet my quota and then I'm going to add a bunch more to that quota. There's no accountability to the Jews. I don't have to tell them what the Romans want me to raise. I could just tell them I need to collect this amount and there's no real accountability. This was double taxation without representation. And the Jews hated them because they knew they did it. So they would sit there at the little lemonade tax stand and they would have their list of all the people in the town and they would know how much each person made. And to the rich, they taxed a whole lot. To the poor, they pretty much taxed almost all that they made. And so you would have to come, go see the tax collector, and you say, okay, yep, this is your last name. All right, here's how much you owe. Pay me that. And if you don't, I have the power to call the Roman soldiers to come and kill you. So there's lots of fear, lots of chaos, and they were despised because they were liars. They were liars. They padded their pockets with the profit above the quota each month, and everyone knew it. And they had nice houses. They were rolling. And tax collectors only really hung out with tax collectors, obviously because they didn't have a lot of friends. So when Jesus says, who am I going to recruit on my team? I need someone on my inner circle who, 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 who is hated because I want to change his heart and his life to be an illustration of how good I am. And by the way, that has been God's style throughout the beginning of time. He uses the sick sinful, weak, foolish people of this world to confound the wise when he transforms their life. He loves to use the evil sinners, radically save them to be a testimony to the world of his grace. You know why? Because if he just uses righteous, self-righteous, able-bodied, very, you know, uh, you know, perfect people, then there would be no contrast to say, well, certainly God moved in your life. See, God loves his job. His job title is God. If he had a desk, that's what it would be on the, on the little plaque on his desk. God. He loves his job and he doesn't want a replacement. He's not looking for anybody else, not you and not me, to be God, to be the transformer of people. He wants to do it. And so when it comes to my life, Brooks Gibbs, before Christ, wicked sinner, totally lost embarrassing things that I did and I practiced in junior high and high school. God came, God transformed my life and my parents can't take credit for that. I can't take credit for that. We all look and say, wow, God did his job. He transformed. And he's using a foolish person to confound the wise, a weak man to amaze the strong. He wants to do the same in your life. And so that's what Jesus did. He came to Matthew and he said, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to transform your life. And Matthew said, I've opened my heart to you. Now I want to open my home. I've got a lot of sinners. I think we can actually learn a lot from Matthew. We can learn that Matthew was not ashamed to bring Jesus to his house and introduce Jesus to all of his sinful friends. You know, if you study the social groups of a new believer, you'll see that after about three to six months, they start being completely disconnected from their unbelieving friends. And they totally associate with believers only. And they really are 
alienated or disconnected from the unsaved world. That's not our goal. The Bible says we are to be in the world, immersed in a sense, right? In the world, fully engaged in the life of sinful people. You know, people who do not believe in Jesus. That's what I mean by sinful people. Not like we're righteous and they're not. We're all sinners, but people who are rejected Jesus, the worst sin of all, we are still to engage in conversation and friendship with them. We are not to be of the world. We're not to practice what they practice, but we are to be in the world. How else will we be a light to the lost if we're always in our holy huddle? May we challenge each other to throw a Matthew party. Throw a Matthew party. Bring all your neighbors, anyone who doesn't know Jesus, invite them to come and and then do what Matthew did. Don't be ashamed of your relationship with Christ and the teachings of Christ. This is where a lot of unbelievers uh, lack courage. They say, well, when I'm around my friends that do not know Jesus, I don't really want to talk about Jesus. I don't want them to think I'm Bible thumping. Why? Because they are clearly, unashamedly sharing their life, their convictions, right? My neighbor the other day was talking to me about evolution and and talking about how many light years different stars are away and and how mankind is, you know, uh, whatever, billions of years old and emerged from a a goo to the zoo to you. And she was just, she's very educated, very matter of fact, and I'm listening, and my boys are around, running around, you know, around me, and I'm just like nodding. And I said, interesting. Or, you can believe what I believe, which is the biblical account. And when you surrender and submit your belief system to the Bible, which has stood the test of time, which is not contradictory in its, in its uh, entirety, which is so beautiful, it makes it so simple. There's no questions, there's no theory God, in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. I love that. I just believe what the Bible says. And there's such, I don't have to wonder, because she was talking about how frustrating it was, as educated as she is, to not know the truth. And I explained to her, it's so cool, the truth is here. There is intelligent design. And she looked at me like, I can't believe you just said that to me. And I was smiling and I was just like so confident and at peace. I think my brother Braden went, yeah, <laughs> like that. I'm my brother, my son, whatever. He's like my brother in Christ. Actually, he, he is my brother. Last, last night on a walk home, he accepted Christ into his heart. So I think that's awesome. My son asked Jesus to come into his heart. Praise the Lord. So he is my brother. So many people say, well, we want to be relevant. So many churches say, well, we, we, we don't want to teach the truth. We don't want to offend them with the truth because we want to be tolerant. And they actually boast. Many churches actually boast. We don't give the gospel on Sunday mornings and we don't give the gospel during our small group time, many churches say, because we don't people want to, they, everyone's on their own journey. Let's read again what Jesus said while he was attending the Matthew party, surrounded by unbelievers. This is what Jesus said in verse 17. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I did not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to what? Repentance. Ultimately, when we share our faith and our beliefs to the unbelieving world, we're sharing it with the agenda to lead them to repentance. And the ultimate repentance, I'm not talking about repentance to live a holy, perfect life. 
Repentance to the worst sin of all, rejection of Jesus Christ. I'm not asking you to get all clean up and be a perfect Christian before you become a Christian. When you go fishing, do you really catch clean fish? They're already filleted and, and they're just there. No, they're dirty, they're nasty, and they're just like, you know, and you pull them in, and you catch the fish, and then you clean them, right? We ask unbelievers, repent of the ultimate sin of rejection of Jesus. Come to get to know Jesus as your friend, your Lord, your master, your savior. And then, now that you're part of the family, we will continue to challenge you into holiness as you challenge me into holiness. Matthew chapter one is beautiful. It was written 50 years after Christ died, about 50 AD. In chapter one, Matthew, uh, remember we said he opened his heart and he followed Jesus? He opened his home and invited Jesus to come and minister to his unbelieving friends. The third thing he did is he opened his hands. He says, Jesus, how do you want to use me? Jesus says, you're a tax collector, right? You're like an accountant. You're really good with numbers. Well, what's in your hand? Well, it's a pen, Matthew would say. I'm going to use that for the kingdom. And so God used Matthew to keep a perfect genealogy of where Jesus came from. Matthew was written to the Jews to prove to the Jews that Jesus was the king. And whenever you say someone's a king, you have to prove his lineage, that he came from a kingly bloodline. And so in verse one, that's what it says. The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So Matthew starts off in his book saying the son of David, remember, if you remember uh, Bible students, God promised Abraham that through his seed, all the nations will be blessed. Through his seed, singular, not seeds. Later on, Paul the apostle would say, God was saying Abraham's seed, not the Jewish people, but one of the people in the Jewish line would be the savior of the world, the kingdom that would have no end. And remember what God promised David. David says, oh God, here I am in a palace, King David said, and you're just in a little tent. I wanna build a big palace for you. He told Nathan that, the prophet. Nathan said, go for it. But then God visited Nathan and said, no, you go tell the king he cannot build a house for me because he's a man of bloodshed, but I will build a house for him, a kingdom that will have no end. Through him, the Messiah will come. So all Jews, remember Matthew wrote to Jews, all Jews would immediately by reading this letter say, aha, he's talking about the son of Abraham and the son of David, prophetic king. Abraham, look here, begot Isaac. Isaac begot Jacob. Jacob begot Judah and his brothers. And Judah begot Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Everyone, if you have a pen, circle Tamar real quick. This is the genealogy. We're gonna come back real quick in a hot second and just look at why she was included. You're like, Brooks, why are you reading these begots? This is like part of the most boring part of the Bible. Not true. Perez begot Hezron, and Hezron begot Ram, and Ram begot Amenudadab, and begot Nashon, and Nashon begot Salmon. Salmon, wasn't that a great name? My friend over here is wearing a salmon color shirt. I've been picking on him all morning. He says, it's not pink, it's salmon. David begot Uh, David the king begot Solomon. Oh, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse six. And Jesse begot David the king. Everyone say, long live the king. And David begot Solomon by her who had been the wife of Uriah. Who was that talking about? Bathsheba, right? Solomon begot Rehoboam. Rehoboam begot 
Abijah, and Abijah begot Asa, and Asa begot Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat begot Joram, and Joram begot Uzziah, Uzziah begot Jotham, and Jotham Ahaz, and Ahaz Hezekiah, and Hezekiah Manasseh, Manasseh Amon, Amon begot Josiah, verse 11, Josiah uh, had a child and begot Jeconiah. In verse 12, and they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot Sheltiel, and Sheltiel Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, almost finished, verse 13, had a son named Abiad, and Abiad begot Eli, whatever. And Azor, what an awesome name. What's your name? Azor. I will slice you. Verse 14, Azor begot Zadok, an even badder dude whose like symbol was a Z. Zadok. Uh, and Zadok gave birth to Akon, at least his wife did. And verse 15, Eliud begat Eliezer. Here we go, check it out. And Eliezer begat Mathan, and Mathan begat Jacob, and Jacob begat Joseph. Woohoo! The husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Everyone say, long live the king. Why is all this important? I'll tell you why. Matthew, the accountant, the one that was a tax collector that God redeemed, friend of sinners. The one who said, I open my heart, I open my house, I'll open up my hand. Jesus Christ recruited him to pin his life blood, his lineage. And Jesus says, you've got to investigate my family. Matthew said, why? He says, because I will be the king of kings and lord of lords. Check it out, dude. Go to the temple. Go through all the scrolls. Read all the genealogy and find out that I am the promised one. The son of David, the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac and Jacob, the son of Josiah, the Jesus of Zoclar and son of all those people. That's you, Matthew said? Investigate it. And so Matthew, with his really smartness and with his meticulous little pinness, he went and he, he went to the temple and he said, oh my gosh. And he discovered more and more, it's true. The dude that recruited me is the king. Holy cow. And he read it and he wrote it. I got to share this with all my friends and with all the Jews. Do you know what's crazy, y'all? He wrote this in 50 AD, right? In 70 AD, the temple that housed all the scrolls with all the genealogy was destroyed. This genealogy, which we read, is so important. It's the most important written piece of literature probably in all of the universe because it states that Jesus was the king. Let me rewind a little bit. I said in 70 AD, Rome destroyed the temple, which housed all the genealogies of all the Jewish people. The, the, the Bible, you know, predicted this through Jesus' words that the temple would be destroyed. History confirms that the Romans destroyed the temple. With that, the Ark of the Covenant, bye-bye. And not only that, the scrolls, bye-bye. Not one stone was left on top of another stone in the temple. The, Jew, the Jews loved the temple. The Jews knew that in the temple housed the genealogy. And in the genealogy would come the Messiah. And the Messiah would have to be part of this line. He would have to be rooted in Abraham, rooted in David, and come through the generation of the Jews. And they waited and waited. And when the temple was destroyed, the Jews looked at each other and said, we'll never be able to know when the Messiah would come. But there was one little scroll that was left. It was Matthew's scroll. Matthew's little investigation was preserved. Because by that time, by 70 AD, it had been rewritten and rewritten and multiplied right? The autograph copy, the original copy was now duplicated multiple times over and spread throughout all the other world. The generation of Jesus, the Messiah. Do you realize that no other person ever can claim that they came from the line of Abraham and David? 
No other person on the universe can ever say that they are the Messiah and they, because they can't prove their heritage except Jesus Christ. And Matthew starts out, why? Because Matthew is all about the kingdom and Jesus says the king is coming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We're gonna study how the kingdom of heaven is rooted. The kingdom starts with the kingly line. Cool thing. And here you might wanna circle Tamar. The Jews would be really mad that in the genealogy of the Messiah Jesus is a woman. They hated women. The Jews looked down at women like property. They look at this at Tamar, and anyone who understands the Old Testament reads the story of Tamar, Genesis chapter 38. Tamar played the harlot. Tamar played the prostitute one time, slept with a man, and that man gave birth to a son who would literally be in the line of Jesus Christ. Tamar, a woman who was a prostitute or played the harlot, was included in here. Also Rahab, uh uh-oh, verse five, another woman. Jews would say, no, 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 what? A woman is in the genealogy? Rahab actually was a harlot. She was a known prostitute in Jericho. If you study scripture and you read what happened in the book of Joshua chapter two, there were spies that went into Jericho and she, Rahab, saved two spies' lives. And she actually made it in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. God honors her, a wicked sinner. Remember Jesus, the friend of sinners, makes it into his Jewish lineage here. Uh Uh-oh, there's Ruth, same verse. Verse five, Ruth, Ruth was a Moabite. She wasn't a Jew. The perfect line of the Jewish people is tainted with Gentile blood. She's a Moabite. The Jews who read this genealogy, the only one left on the face of the planet, would say, ah, ick, sick. You realize that the Jews hated Gentiles, that if they brushed up against a Gentile, they would have to go home immediately, burn their clothes, take a bath, and get rechanged. And of course, they'd try to stay away from Gentiles. They hated women. They hated women so bad, every morning Jews would, male Jews would pray this prayer. God, thank you so much that I am not a Gentile, that I am not a dog, and that I am not a woman. That's what they prayed. It was terrible how they looked at them like property. And then look at finally verse six. You see, and David begot, uh, the king begot Solomon by her who had been given the wife, wife of Uriah. Interesting that it doesn't say Bathsheba, but it's as if Matthew wanted to remind the Jews who are reading this, it wasn't just Bathsheba, but if you remember the story of Bathsheba, Bathsheba was a woman who was married to a guy by the name of Uriah. And if you remember the story, David killed her husband because he was like really attracted to Bathsheba and then slept with her. And she became impregnated, gave birth to Solomon. David, their king, committed murder and adultery. Through this whole genealogy is sinners all woven throughout. And Jesus wanted to make sure, hey, you need to know where I come from. You need to know what, what I'm here for. I'm here to be a friend of sinners because I come from a line of sinners and I come to set the sinners on this new path of repentance. So, so important. The Jews love their genealogy and they lost it and all they have left is this. They love their male superiority and their women are throughout all of the lineage of Jesus. They love their family responsibility and yet harlots are throughout. They love their morality and sexual purity and yet there is Rahab, the prostitute, 
They love their sexual purity and their racial purity, but Ruth the Moabitess, the Gentile, is in there. And they love their history about their King David, who is a great man of God, a man after God's own heart, but in the genealogy, it shows his sin. You know, God is building a new kingdom as we study Jesus' life. You're gonna see as we study Jesus' life that every thought that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and all the religious people had about what Jesus the king would be, he flips it upside down and he starts with his genealogy. I love what 1 Corinthians says. Verse one, don't turn there, but it says, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. When you became a Christian, think of what you were. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world to despise to the, uh, and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him, God, that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom of God. That is, I love this part, our righteousness, our holiness, our redemption, It's all from God. Therefore, as it is written, let no one who boasts, or let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's boast in the Lord. And so finally, uh, closing in verse 18, we see that Joseph was begotten from from this great heritage. And this happens, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother was betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, before they got married, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Brooks, this sounds like Christmas. Exactly. This is the Christmas story. Before they actually hooked up, before they, you know, uh, consummated the marriage, they were just engaged. It says that they were betrothed. We don't use the word betrothed. Maybe your version of scripture says pledged. Maybe your version says espoused. Back in the Jewish day, basically it was an arranged marriage. Joseph's parents said, I like Mary's parents. They have our same values. They have our same kind of convictions. So Joseph's parents talked to Mary's parents and they made the agreement, our children will marry one day. Oftentimes you were engaged, or sorry, you were, you were spoken for even before you were born. By the time you were 12 years old, you, or 13 years old, you were espoused or betrothed or pledged, or as we would say today, engaged. Can you imagine junior hires being engaged? That was the parents of our Lord Jesus. They were betrothed. And you know the story. Mary becomes impregnated. And how terrible this was because they thought that she had played the harlot. But the Bible says that she was with child of the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, man of morality, and not wanting to make her a public example, a man of mercy, was minded to put her away secretly. Joseph doesn't get a lot of credit, and he should. Joseph found out that his, his uh, fiance was pregnant. And being a just man and a moral man, he was saying, this is wrong, I can't marry a girl who's pregnant. But being a merciful man, he says, but I'm gonna put her away quietly. You see, Mary should have been stoned the Levitical law said that they were to put her in a box of manure, take rocks from the community and stone her to death, throw rocks at her so that when she was hit and she fell straight into the manure because she had played the harlot, she was to be killed for her gross sin. 
Now Joseph said, I can't imagine Mary. There must be a mistake. There must be something happened. I'm going to put her away quietly. You know, a lot of guys are not moral and they accept any sin. They have no backbone. Joseph had a backbone. This is wrong. This is wrong. This is not right. And I cannot partake in this type of, oh, may God give us moral men that are perfectly balanced with mercy. I want to be moral and take a stand, but I also want to be gracious to those who have sinned. But it also says, finally, verse 20, it says, but when he thought about these things, so he was mindful, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. He was also mystical. And the the angel said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you, Mary, your wife, for that, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bring forth a son. You shall call his name Jesus. Jesus means he will save his people from their sins. So all these things were done that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the Lord through the prophet saying, behold, the virgin shall be with child to bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is the title that says God is with us or God is amongst us. Then Joseph being aroused from sleep did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took his wife and did not know her or sleep with her till she had brought forth her firstborn son and called his name Jesus. So here Jesus enters the scene as the new king. He fulfilled prophecy. He came from the line of David, the line of Abraham. He came from a a virgin birth. So important to know this. This is foundational stuff. And Joseph, a godly, godly man, was mindful and was thinking, I just, something, something must be happening. I know Mary is a good woman. And he was mystical. He dreamed and God spoke and said, don't be afraid. Something's happened to your wife that's changed her. Husbands, can I give you a little extra gold? Here's just a little extra gold. You didn't even know it was coming. Sometimes your wife will exceed in her spirituality. She will surpass you. I don't know why God has made women so special in the area of faith, but women have a lot easier time with faith than men do. Maybe men are logical thinkers and women are logical too, but they have this ability to cross over to to the supernatural. And sometimes God will place something in, he will conceive something in the Holy Spirit in your wife's heart much like Mary conceived with Jesus. And just like Mary expanded quite literally, your wife will expand in her desire to know God. She will be so just wanting more and more and more of God. And let me tell you something, ladies, you may not understand this, but guys actually have this insecurity. Sometimes Jesus can be the other man. Why are you getting up so early? Why are you reading your Bible so much? What about my oatmeal? Why are you going to church all the time? Why are you studying all this like weird genealogy, all this little weird left brain stuff? Don't you know there's a game on? Don't you know there's more important things? Can't we go to the park or the lake? Oh, but your wife grows. Something's growing inside of her. Husbands, let me just say, encourage it. Because as she expands with her love for Jesus and she grows in her knowledge of who he is, she'll become a better wife and a better mother. She will be better. If you want your wife to get better, send her to Bible study, send her to small group. And better yet, go with her. And better yet, teach her. Never be offended by this Jesus that has planted a seed of growth inside of her. Because Mary would become the most praised woman of all time. I think the Catholics praise her too much. I think the Protestants praise her too little. 
But somewhere in between, we could see this woman. The Bible says a woman who loves God and fears the Lord is worthy to be praised. Oh, husbands, let's be logical, but also let's be dreamers and mystical and allow the God to plant a seed in our hearts that we might grow. And let us, let us applaud our wife. Because Jesus, when you get to know Jesus more and more, that he is the prophesied king, everything that was taught about him was true, he is a friend of sinners, and he loves to transform a sinful life into the path of repentance and make you completely new. That's the beginning of the gospel. Matthew chapter, that's the beginning of the gospel, and it only gets better from here on out. God is doing a new work. Yes, he is, and he's doing a new work with Devotion Church, a brand new church plant in Safety Harbor, Florida. And I wanna take a moment to not only thank you for listening to this message, but I would like to invite you to visit our church in person if you are in the Tampa Bay area or wherever you live, join us online at www.devotion.church. When you are there, you can sign up for our seven-day devotion challenge that will inspire you to enjoy friendship with God through the discipline of daily devotions. You know, devotion is always an invitation, never an obligation. So thank you for sharing devotion time with me today. I hope that you will share this message with someone who needs it. I'm Brooks Gibbs, the lead pastor of Devotion Church, and I pray that today you will enjoy friendship with God.